You're entering Outer Brightness. Hey, Fireflies. This is part two of our discussion with Steve James. We're going to pick up where we left off last time. Hope you enjoy. So let me ask just a couple of more questions with regards sure. to Article of Faith 8, if you're okay with that, Steve. <clears throat> so, um, you know, you asked, are there any Christians who don't believe the first part of it? Um, I, I guess I would ask you, do you believe the first part of it, given First Nephi 13? First Nephi 13. Are you talking about where he talks about the corruption of the scriptures? Yeah, and plain and precious yeah. truths removed. Uh-huh. Yeah, I certainly, I mean, I, I think that that's the reason the first part's there. Um, you know, when we look at what's happened to the Bible, and we'll, we'll explore a few things down here in detail, but there's only a few um, really obvious errors that have bubbled to the top. But when we're doing a reading, we need to, I think, understand that certain things are uh, kind of a level beneath, and that that's part of what, you know, translated correctly uh, means. But uh, no, I certainly think that that's uh, that that's applicable. I think the reason why we have to say translate correctly is because of that corruption that happens in the text. And it's also important to mention that corruption happened both before and after the New Testament. And that's something that Latter-day Saints sometimes don't remember. Is that, you know, Nephi's talk about corruption in his time during the intertestamental period. Um, and that's kind of its own topic for itself. But uh, I certainly think those are compatible. So what, when... When Nephi's writing and, and talking about, you know, the, the the Bible going forth in purity from the Jews unto the Gentiles uh, in first Nephi chapter 13, um, and that after it goes through, goes to the Gentiles to the um, the great and abominable church, that is when mm-hmm. plain and precious truths are taken out. What what plain and precious truths do you believe are taken out or were taken oh, out? Oh, sure. Oh, so a few that come to mind, uh, use of the Melchizedek priesthood. Uh, that's something that we now know, uh, scholars know that that was in practice up until the Exodus. Among all the Israelites, every tribe had a right to priesthood. All men uh, who were patriarchs over their family did, did sacrifice in the role as priests. Um, you know, we, we can learn about the, the suffering Messiah. So there's a lot of work being done by Christians regarding what's things that had been moved from the Jewish scriptures. Uh, two themes that you'll find if you dive down that rabbit hole is two powers in heaven and suffering Messiah. And those are both teachings that were within Judaism at the time that were kind of stripped out either right before or right around the time Christ came. And, uh, you know, there are early church fathers, I guess, talking about it. I'm not too familiar with that. But uh, so those are some of the doctrines I found missing. I think that uh, uh, in the early church, they practiced a chism, which was sort of like an initiatory. It'd be similar to what LDS practice today as initiatories and endowments. Um, I think a lot of temple work stuff in general had been uh, stripped from the scriptures. Uh, another that comes to mind is the aspect of Christ's grace that pertains to healing and suckering. Uh, we could call it atoning grace or healing grace, but, you know, in the Book of Mormon, we're explicitly told that, that all of our pains and afflictions were also experienced in the garden so that Jesus would know how to heal us. Whereas that's not a teaching I really see in Christianity, and I don't know 
of a verse in the Bible that explicitly comes out and says that. Um, yeah, you know, I, I need to have a, a better checklist of, you know, running list of things. But those are a few doctrines that I, I could see definitely have been stripped out. Um, I think the uh, organization and hierarchy is another one. So you you think that those things were actively stripped out? Um, I guess, what do you mean by actively? Like, I, like, I mean, you think scribes in the early oh, church uh, removed them from r- the scriptures? Rather, rather it was intentional or not, that's not really my place to say. Um, but what I can say is that, you know, we have it now. And it's not there in the scriptures now. So if it ever was there, it had to have been removed. Um, the reason why we know that there's stuff that there was more that was there is because we see in the early church certain practices that aren't done today that are at least close to what LDS believe or at least have the same uh, same general feel to them. And so when you see things like that, you know that for a time this was believed and then it didn't make the cut in terms of the canon. So rather that was done intentionally, rather that was done um, just accidentally, I'm not really sure. And I don't know that I'm in a place to judge that. I look at the like Deuteronomy 35.8. I think that's one we've talked about where it says sons of Israel or it says sons of God. And the original Dead Sea Scrolls says sons of God, whereas a lot of translations say sons of Israel. That's one where in particular, I do not think that could have been done by accident. I don't think that the words, the Hebrew words Elohim and you know Yitzrael or whatever are close enough to where we could really say that was just a mistake. And especially given how the Jews were so... Um, for lack of a better term, anal, anal about how they copied their scripts. And if there's one mistake, they threw the whole thing out and started all over again. It seems hard for me to think that that particular change that we know happened was done purely accidentally. Okay. Um, so, yeah, you mentioned a lot there. I, I think the one, you know, one I would kind of touch on is you mentioned chrism. Um, you know, that's a practice still that's still part of um, the Eastern Orthodox uh, rites. Um, sure. So that's one of their sacraments. Um, and it, it aligns with the Roman Catholic uh, confirmation, mm-hmm. uh, right? So, you know, those are things that are still still kind of there. Um, I think for me, as I, as I think about like First Nephi 13 and, and, and the claims that are made there, um, you know, for a biblical studies guy who, who really is interested in, in the texts and the manuscripts and, and that history, um, I think you would have to have evidence that that things were stripped out and and when it comes to the new testament um you know with the with the manuscript evidence we have you you just don't see a lot stripped out you see like you were saying a couple of things that that scholars think well this this might have been added at a later date because it doesn't show up in the earliest manuscripts um but we find um you know really really close fidelity to you know within the manuscripts to each other uh throughout you know as 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 they trace them back um <clears throat> The vast majority of of variants are are you know grammatical or or spelling uh, type errors. So um, yeah, I, I just think if, if if the claim is that that there were these plain and precious truths removed, um, you know, I, I would want to see manuscript evidence for where those where those were removed. I get what you're saying about B'nai Elohim, and you and I would probably agree a lot on on that topic sure. if we if we kind of ran down that road, but. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, so so I maybe three or four really quick New Testament examples that I would jump to as um, evidence that something was removed. First is there's a letter from Paul to Corinth that a lot of people kind of consider the lost epistle because it gets referenced, but it uh, it never appears in the record. That's one. Now you have the forty day ministry of Christ, which again received lots of reference. Obviously, a very important event doesn't show up in the record at all. Uh, the more interesting one is Jude. 
where you actually have a reference to a prophecy given by Enoch that's found in the book of Enoch, almost word for word, I mean, it's clearly the same exact prophecy being fulfilled in Jude, but uh, all they take was that one specific prophecy. And, it, um, you know, there are evangelical scholars who've done the work of looking into Enoch and found a lot more connections to New Testament writings, um, which, you know, when you read the work of someone like Heiser, I know I bring him up a lot. Um, he's a guy who pretty much outright says certain things have been either hidden or taken out or otherwise messed with. Another good non-LDS source for that would be Margaret Barker. Uh, I probably dropped her name a time or two in the chats. She's a Methodist scholar who expertise in New Testament uh, or intertestamental period. And she has a great article where she pretty much takes the beginning of the Book of Mormon compared to what was usually to what was going on before Josiah's reform and essentially tells us it's a, it's a, a match. Um, interesting scholarship to, to read, but that's, that's something we could delve. That's almost worthy of its own uh, podcast there. Yeah. So check my memory that the third, uh, the missing letter of Paul, Jude, what was the third one you mentioned from the new Testament? Oh, uh, 40 day ministry, 40 day ministry. So what I would say about, um, <clears throat> those three, uh, first, the, the missing letter of Paul, there are some scholars who believe that it, that it's actually integrated into, um, I think second Corinthians, um, uh, that there, there is some, some, uh, scholarship around, um, the idea that, and don't, don't quote me on that because it's been a while since I looked at it. I think it's second Corinthians, but there's some scholarship around the idea that there's a portion of, uh, second Corinthians that looks like it, it may not fit with mm-hmm. the rest of it. Um, and so mm-hmm. it looks like maybe a scribe combined two letters that. together. Right. Uh-huh. So that's, there's that. Um, Jude and first Enoch, uh, I mean, first Enoch is really important to understanding, um, you know, second temple Judaism and what, uh, the people of that time period believed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't, it does, it's not problematic to me that Jude quotes from, from first Enoch. Um, it, I would say that doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, the groups considered first Enoch to be scripture, right. Mm-hmm. Um, because, um, you know, you look at Paul, uh, when he's preaching and he, and he, and he quotes from, from the Greek poems, right. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, he's not quoting the Greek poems as scripture, uh, but mm-hmm. he's making a point to his listeners uh, from, from something they believe and something that that's important to them. Sure. Um, so, you know, Jude could be doing the same thing. Um, what was the third one? Uh, 40 day ministry, 40 day ministry. So that comes, that comes up a lot in Gnostic writings, which are later. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, Yes, they used it a lot, but does that mean that it that it was originally part of um, you know the New Testament? It, it doesn't look that way from from the manuscript evidence and what else we see in the New Testament. So um, you know the mysteries and and the things that the Gnostics held to uh, that that all comes kind of later in the second century and, and onward. Um, and 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 you're right, the forty day ministry was a big part of that, and I know Hugh Nibley wrote pretty sure. extensively on that. Um, but you know, as a, as a Christian, I would say, I, I don't think that, that the Gnostics fall early enough to, uh, to believe that that was a big part of early Christianity. Sure. Well, and I don't know that any Gnostic writing would qualify necessarily as new Testament beliefs so much as give us an example of that people believe things and we're teaching things about the 40 day ministry using records that we don't have. If that makes any sense, it's evidence that there was something being taught that we don't have anymore. Whether or not it's what those Gnostics were saying, I think it's a different discussion altogether. There's a there's a really great series by uh, Michael Kruger. His his he's really an expert in the canon, specifically of the New Testament. 
And so he's written two books on the canon and he has a free uh, video series where he talks about the canon and he talks about the Gnostic Gospels and the infancy gospel of Thomas where Jesus supposedly kills somebody uh, uh, with a rock, I think it was. <laughs> or, or, yeah, there's like three different there's three different versions. It's like somebody tripped tripped over him or pushed him or something like that. And so he uh-huh. threw a rock or something and killed the kid. Yeah. There's some weird stories in there. So yeah, he, he talks about all these Gnostic gospels and why they weren't rejected, you know, either because, you know, it was still in the second century, there were people who knew people who knew the apostles or themselves knew the apostles, you know, because sure. they lived up to the eighties and nineties. Uh, well, John, John did. And so, um, you know, if they found this new book that nobody had heard of, you know, they obviously knew uh, that it wasn't, written by the original authors of scripture. So there, there's a whole lot of reasons why they rejected those Gnostic gospels. Um, or, or if they just came in the third or fourth century, you know, if this is too late for it to be, sure. you know, to be original. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of discussion you could talk about in terms of the canon um, and why some are rejected, but, um, but yeah, I don't think that's an indication that, you know, it's, it's an interesting discussion when you can compare that to like uh, say, um, the woman taken in adultery. That's one of the major mm-hmm. textual variants in the new Testament, because there's some people that take some uh, evangelical scholars that take the opinion that it is original, actually a lot do um, because it was, it's in early texts, but it's not in the same place. It's kind of in different, different areas of John, or even in a different gospel. Like this, it's like a story that they didn't, you know, that moved they locations. Hmm. Yeah. And then, uh, but some people say it was an oral history, like an oral story that was passed down yeah. through the church that was added later. So there's uh-huh. different there's different ideas about that to where they you know that there's evidence that it was historical but not canonical if that makes sense. Yeah, whereas, absolutely. Whereas with the the Gnostic Gospels, you know, there's really no indication or evidence that they're of the same caliber. You know what I mean? It seems like mm-hmm. they're all kind of like like a Michael Kruger talks about. It. He's like you know people you know Gnostics they love secret knowledge. I mean that's the whole you no know, yeah. knowledge. So they see these gaps in the gospels and they're like, we got to fill that up. You know, like this, this would make for some awesome print, you know, uh-huh, <laughs> we're going sure. to we're make ourselves famous. And then they would also attach names of apostles like Thomas or Peter mm. to their Gnostic gospels to, to kind of give them more clout. So they were pseudepigraphical, yeah. and, you know, they, they attached a different name to it. So, so it's not quite the same. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that the case of like the woman taking adultery is much different from like the Gnostic gospels as to, you know, why that would, why the, the former would be reliable and the Gnostic gospels. Mm. So sorry, yeah. kind, of, kind of long-winded, but no, no, I, I think that, that's well said. I would agree with that for sure. Yeah. And I, I should probably know for our listeners here that this, this uh, episode will probably be a little bit challenging uh, for some. We're, we're going kind of uh-huh. in depth on, on some things, but um, you know, these are questions that for, uh, Latter-day Saints or former Latter-day Saints uh, are, are kind of burning questions. I know for mm-hmm. me, when I was, when I was kind of coming out of the LDS church, um, you know, I, I held to a lot of, a lot of similar views that, that you kind of hold Steve, like, you know, oh, well, the, the Bible was corrupted. Um, there's things missing from the canon. Um, so I, I kind of gravitated to scholars like Bart Ehrman, um, Robert M. Price, you know, picked up some of their books from uh, half price books. I spent a lot of time in there and I, and I really wanted to know, you know, okay, if I'm, if I'm going to be Christian, uh, is is the Bible reliable? You know, so I, I read uh, Bart Ehrman's uh, what's his what's his name is called uh, Early Christianities. I think it's called is one of his books. And sounds, um, sounds right. Uh, yeah, because his his whole argument in that book is that there wasn't one early Christianity. There mm-hmm. were many. Yeah, um, I, I would agree with him on that. Or lost Christianities, maybe it's called, and then hit the companion book to that is Lost Scriptures. Uh, and yeah, of, of course, I would agree with him on that. There are, there were various groups 
Um, just as there were various uh, Jewish sects at the time, there were various uh, sects that claimed to be followers of Jesus. Um, so the question is, what goes back to the apostles? Um, and so I, you know, I've definitely read Ehrman. I've read the, you know, the Orthodox Corruption of Scripture, his other big uh, important work. Um, you know, those those books uh, pushed me to to look further, right? And and you know, read some books on canon, the canon formation. Um, and you know, one one thing I would say about canon, because uh, Matthew was touching on that, is that you know, one of the big questions coming out of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was, you know, is the canon expand? There's a canon of the Old Testament expanded by finding, you know, what the Essenes had. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> should should there be more books in the in the Old Testament canon than what we have? Uh, come to us through the Masoretic text, right? Sure. Um, and you know, an interesting thing to say about that is, if you look at my bookshelf, which is behind me, you don't see it because I'm, I'm sharing my logo. But um, you know, I've got the Nag Hammadi Library on my bookshelf. I've got several books with the Apocrypha. I've got um, the, Dead, the full Dead Sea Scrolls on my bookshelf. Um, so just because something is in someone's library doesn't mean that that person or group considered it to be scripture. Sure. Right. And so that's, that's also the, uh, an important question to answer when you're, when you're studying through the Bible is, uh, is there a pl- is there a way that biblical authors kind of, uh, especially new Testament authors indicate that they are referen- referencing what they consider to be scripture. And is there, you know, when they, when they reference something like first Enoch, that, um, that tag of kind of like, as it is written, doesn't show up. Mm-hmm. Right. So sure. Yeah. And that's, you know, I, I, you know, in the LDS, there's kind of a similar, uh, so saith the Lord kind of thing where people try to put qualifiers when, uh, when someone in authority speaking, I, you know, to, to me, I think we rely on the fruit of the spirit to discern ultimately what's, what's really, uh, truly truth and what's, what's more interesting and maybe some truth in it. Um, but yeah. Okay. So anything else on that? Or? I don't think so. I think, uh, keep on going with your outline. So um, one question I had is, is the JSG or the Joseph Smith translation just as true as the ESV? I would say no. Um, and my reasoning being, and I'm going to kind of sound like a broken record is, is, you know, the, the manuscript evidence, right? Mm-hmm. So with the JST, Joseph Smith, um, I mean, I guess, you know, scholars say we don't know what he was doing. Uh, there's some, some scholarship coming out of BYU and, and the interpreter foundations trying to refute it that he might've been referencing Adam Clark's commentary in some. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I've looked at that. that. Yeah. For a long time, I thought he had Adam Clark and, and uh, after reading the response to that, I'm actually really heavily swayed the other direction. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I haven't yet read the response. I'm going to have to take a look at that. Um, but in any case, uh, you know, the, the, the RLDS church who had the, the manuscript of, uh, mm-hmm. what he did there with the Bible for many, many years, uh, you know, they kind of, when they published it, called it the inspired version, uh, sure. the implication there being that, that he was inspired to make corrections to, uh, the biblical text. Um, you know, some LDS scholars tie that back to first Nephi 13 and, and suggest that what he was doing there was restoring the text as it, as it, mm-hmm. as it was when it fell from the pen. Yeah, um, and yeah. again, again, I'd like to see, uh, manuscript evidence, you know, and, and, and the scholars who have looked at this very closely, um, is it Matthews, Robert J. Matthews, I think is one of the ones who wrote one of the big books on that. Um, you know, they admit there's, there's not uh, manuscript evidence mm-hmm. for the changes that he made. Um, so the ESV though, 
um, it seeks to be a literal translation, right? Mm-hmm. So like a one for one, this is what the, this is what the word is in Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic. Uh, and this is what the best English equivalent to that is. Um, and so <clears throat> there are various models of, tra- of Bible translation, um, from, you know, from on one end of the spectrum, from trying to be a literal word for word translation to the other end of the spectrum being like a paraphrase, like the message. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I was going to say the message kind of yeah. notorious. One and, you know, and I, I actually like the message. I like reading the message for daily devotional uh, sure. just because okay. of the language is more poetic. It's, it's put in kind of the, verna- you know, today's vernacular. Uh-huh. Um, I don't read it for theological Uh, inspiration, you know, I read it for understanding God's love for us. Right. So there are various uses for uh, the various models of translation. Um, And I wouldn't even call, I wouldn't even call the message a translation, right. It's a paraphrase. It's not, uh, it's not seeking to represent what, uh, except in ideas, right. It's not seeking to represent one for one uh, translation. So, so where the ESV is seeking to be that one for one, the JST yeah, it's, all, it's um, almost know, more of a commentary. Yeah, you know, that's, that's kind of the way it's being explained nowadays uh-huh. anyway, is that it's it's more sure. of a commentary. Um, so I guess my question for you on that would be, what what do you think of the, I forget how many verses it is, 13 or something like that, that Joseph Smith added to Genesis 50? Uh, with, these are the yeah. ones that, uh, the, pro, the, the proclamation about himself of the future. Exactly. Yeah, yeah no, no, I think that's actually gives us a great example of how he saw translation where he knows that this prophecy exists because of his translation of the Book of Mormon. I don't know that he understood it at the time when it was being written, but he eventually learned that. And so when he's looking at the Bible, he sees it's not in there. Oh, I got to update that, put that in there. And he added, you know, a lot of things like that. I mean, the entire Book of Moses was essentially an add-on similar to that. It just was so long that it became its own book. Um, And so I, I think that when Joseph looked at translation, it definitely wasn't like, you know, this is the Greek word. What is the English word? A functional translation. It may have been that way for the Book of Mormon, but in terms of the Bible, he was clearly seeking clarity. So he would go and, you know, maybe there's a passage where it's kind of implied it's talking about all, but it doesn't say it. he'll just write all in there because obviously it's talking about all. And there should be no question about it. So I think he was actually seeking more to uh, really get doctrine more rigidly, give a more rigid framework to the doctrine of the church. So for the saints at that time, because you know, saints back then were a lot more diverse in their belief and there was a lot of kind of wonky things that people were teaching. And so as a way to correct them, I think that was Joseph's in, in, uh, intent, but uh, you know, we'll never know. So, so you would, so you would say that that was more of a commentary or would you say that that was original? Do you know what I mean? Oh, the, 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 the addition of it in there. I mean, it wasn't original to him because it came from the book of Mormon. So, I mean, I guess if you're saying that he wrote the book of Mormon, it was original to him, but uh, the same would be said of, of the book of Moses, but I don't think that he was looking at it like this belongs here because of the Greek. He was saying, I, this belongs here because this is part of the prophecy that's missing. And so I'm going to add it in. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. There's another case too, that we hadn't brought up yet. I think it's uh, maybe doctrine and covenant seven or eight, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the revelation given to him about John, you know, that that's uh, written on a, I, I don't know if he explained it, what it was written on exactly. Yeah, it's like, like a Irish. parchment or something. Yeah. 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 But he didn't actually have it. Uh-huh. So, so what do you think about that one? Like, um, oh, I, I think Joseph had a had a gift to retrieve ancient texts. I mean, it's possible the Book of Mormon translation went down in a similar way, where he was given, you know, specific verbiage on a pre-written document or something like that. But uh, you know, he, he was a seer, 
And that's part of the gift of a seer is to be able to see things from antiquity or from whenever. And uh, so, uh, you know, that's how I assumed that whole thing happened. Whether or not that was always how we translated, I don't know. Kind of seems like maybe not the case. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that. I I wanted to kind of ask about like how, if you could, you know, kind of like put yourself in someone in the opposite side's shoes and see, you know, why that could be seen as like, you know, claiming revelation from a source, a written source that he doesn't have access to, how that could uh, be seen as difficult to believe oh, or, or sure. to take that, you know? As sure. A, no, I, I, I mean, the, the, the entire story of the Bible front to end is difficult to believe, you know, if you're really going to take things seriously, you know, Moses parting the Red Sea, that's a difficult thing to believe. Um, but in terms of Joseph, I think looking at, um, you know, the way that he approached scripture, I, I, he, he did it so many different ways that it's kind of fun to see this kind of smorgasbord where the Book of Mormon, he has a source he's working with. With the Book of Moses, he has no source. With the Book of Abraham, he has a source that he's jumping back and in, into and then adding things to. And so uh, I think it's interesting to see the different means that he was able to, to bring about stuff. And I think the overall, I mean, one of the things that I think helps bolster the testimony for a Latter-day Saint studies is recognizing the correspondences that Joseph continues to make with ancient documents. The further back we go, the more we learn, the more on point he is with certain things. And it's, you know, he would just have to be the luckiest guesser in all of history to have gotten so much so precisely right, in my opinion. So it's a little, little bit off topic, but that's kind of where my thoughts go on that. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of the correspondences for me, um, you know, I've, I've read a lot of Nibley. Uh, he does a lot of parallelomania. Um, the correspondences to me don't don't rise to the level of um, demonstrable to the to the point where I think they're uh, they're convincing. Um, I don't know if you saw our debate, uh, the debate we did with uh, or I did with with Brett Dennis on the Book of Abraham yeah. or not. Yeah, yeah that um, was good. You know, but I brought up the Sobek is mentioned in Adam Clark, which mm-hmm. you know is a, is a commentary that he had access to according to the historical record. Um, so it's not, you know, that kind of, that kind of correspondence is not surprising, uh, to see, I think, you know, I I guess I would ask the question, like, um, if, if there were someone in the second century who produced, uh, a writing that claimed to be a prophecy of themselves, Mm -hmm. would you find that convincing? Why or why not? I mean, that's a lot of what the old Testament is though, um, you know, Isaiah is claiming to be a prophet. Ezekiel is claiming to be a prophet. Right. Um, but not, but not, they're not claiming to produce an ancient prophecy of their own work. Right. Oh, I see what you're saying. Like, they're not saying I, I'm, I'm this figure mentioned in there. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's probably examples of that. I'd have to look and see. I don't know, to, to me, I guess uh, I've never thought of it that way before. It, to me, it makes sense. It should be there. Like, I, I think he would get attacked either way. If he didn't add it, they would say, oh, he doesn't even believe his own prophecy about himself. And he adds, oh, he's just adding prophecy about himself. I kind of feel like that, that's one of those things where no matter what, there's going to be criticism. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I hear you. Um, and I think, you know, with regards to what a seer is, you know, we, we get that definition from the Book of Mormon, right? That uh-huh. is, where, is where Smith gives us that. So, uh, again, it's sure. kind of, I mean, you it, know, it's a word say that predates him, but yeah. It predates him if if the book of Mormon is an ancient record. Well, right? even in the Bible, that word appears though, doesn't it? Right. Right. Sure. But the, right. But not the definition of what a seer is that, that kind of uh-huh. is given in the book of Mormon. Um, so it's kind of, to me, it's kind of circular to say Smith is a seer according to the definition that he gave of what a seer is. I mean, I, I don't know. I'd have to look into that and see, but I'm pretty sure that's a pretty common view of, of being a seer is being able to see things. Um, 
you know, I know that uh, the high priest, when they had the Urim and Thummim, which obviously is its own deal, you know, that was something that they used in a way very similar to what Joseph did. Um, I don't know if that's ever uh, described as being seer activity or not, but I think that would match what a seer would do. Um, you know, and, and uh, I liked your debate with uh, Brett. I thought that, uh, you know, you both kind of had different assumptions and landed in different places. The, to me, the, the more compelling part isn't just the correspondences with Abraham, but it's the it's the details of some of them. You know, the, when you keep in mind in the fact that uh, when Joseph produced this, the idea of Abraham even being literate was absurd. And, you know, now we have all these other apocryphal writings showing that not only was he literate, he actually wrote this book, and he taught astronomy, and he did all these things. Uh, I don't know. To me, that's just, uh, it's easy for us to forget that we know more now than they did back then. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely you know, some proposed correspondences to like, um, second Enoch and that type of thing that, that weren't known in Joseph's day. Um, but you know, in terms of him being an astronomer, that's in Josephus. So mm-hmm. that was readily available yeah. to Joseph Smith. So, yeah. And, you know, I, I hear a lot of Joseph, you know, having sources available to him. Are you familiar with any evidence that he actually like had these things at the time? Like, I know that some things were published later, but, uh, you know, has anyone ever said Joseph was reading Adam Clark's Bible or Joseph was reading Josephus and this happened? Yeah, no, there's not, there's not historical evidence of that. Um, you know, and, that, and that's, you know, to be fair, that's, that's the the critique that a lot of apologists make of, of my position, you know, um, because there's not someone saying, Hey, he had this or he had that. Um, but I also would argue that there probably weren't people in the room all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very likely. Um, okay. We know Emma was in and out. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, it's, is it, so I, here's what I want to say. Um, I don't come from a position of uh, Joseph Smith producing what he produced by supernatural means is impossible. I don't come from that presupposition, um, but I do come from the 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 view that um, what he produced does not have any um, any archaeological or manuscript support prior to him. Okay, um, he produces it. Uh, he makes claims for what it is. Um, but nothing exists prior to him to show that it actually is what he claims. Um, okay. So, anyway. I, yeah, I can point you in a few directions on that. I, I don't want to get too lost in the weeds, but we, we need to sometime either via this podcast or elsewhere discuss Enoch, specifically uh, Mahija, and how Joseph was able to actually bring out two variants of an ancient name matching to a character within the Enoch story that matches Enoch's books long before they were ever published. Um, uh, Hugh, Hugh Nibley called it the most... Uh, the most testable uh, thing for Joseph, and he, he just completely nails it. Um, but we can talk about that later. I think that's a subject for itself. Um, I've kind of brought us off in the weeds here, so let me kind of see. Oh, good. We're, that's kind of how we roll anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, fair <laughs> enough. So, um, so, but like uh, in discussing Bible translation, you know, if we were to look at Matthew five twenty two. Um, that verse contains a, a section, depending on which translation you're looking at, it'll say without a cause. He whoever uh, hates a man or offends a man without a cause. That's one of those things that's been found to be a later addition. Uh, if you look at all the translations, you'll find that about only 14 of the 60 or so uh, have that that in there. Um, so, I mean, and, and I'm sure that if we were to look at like this, the, the literary criticism, we find this was something that was added later. So to me, I look at that and say, okay, well, obviously those 14 that have it can't be the same exact amount of truth as the 46 or whatever that don't have it, right? Because one of them has a falsehood within it. 
Um, and I think it's important to mention that the Book of Mormon correctly does not have that that edition in there. So, you know, even though it isn't the KJV. So, you know, I hear a lot of Joseph copied the KJV. When someone actually looks at the Book of Mormon, Isaiah content or Matthew content versus what's in the KJV, they find differences. Uh, this being one of them that uh, to me is at least interesting. How did he know to leave out that particular part when he was plagiarizing this? Um, but I guess going back to the, the infallibility would you agree with me that those 14 that have that are can't be considered the exact same amount of truth as the ones that don't correctly, if that makes any sense? Could you could you reset the question? Uh, so so you mean like ones with yeah, so 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 uh um so if a translation has this later clause that was added later, mm-hmm. it, it cannot be the exact same amount of true as a version that does have it or that does not have it correctly if that makes any sense. So like, because this later portion was added on, it's less true than this one that doesn't have it added on. Is that something you would agree with? Or is that, am I just, uh, you know, grasping at straws here? I would, I would say that it's, if based on textual criticism, if we can demonstrate with a very high level of accuracy that a text was added, that it reflects less accurately the original text. That's kind of how I would probably state it. Okay. That's a good way of saying it, Paul. Yeah. So I would, so for me, as a biblical studies guy who's kind of committed to the idea that um, God inspired the original text, I'm okay with textual criticism leading us to areas where we find that certain uh, phrases are not in the earliest manuscripts. Um, and I think the closer we get to the earliest manuscripts, the better. Um, so that's what I would say on that. The other thing I would say on on that, on your comment on the Book of Mormon not including it, um, is that uh, Adam Clark on his commentary on verse 22 does very explicitly talk about the fact that that clause is not included uh, in, and it's very questionable. So sure. if Joseph Smith had reference to Clark, uh, it, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, this would have to be super early. I mean, it, when he was doing the book of Mormon, there's no evidence he even had a Bible of his own. So, I mean, you know, I'm not saying you can't make the argument. You could, that Joseph had the Adam Clark Bible and somehow secretly studied it and knew a specific which details to do and memorize so that when he's looking into a hat, he's able to relate out those to them. I mean, I'm not saying you can't make that argument. I'm saying that for me personally, that probably not going to, probably not going to shift the needle all that much, but uh, I get where you're coming so, from there. But let me ask you that though. Cause that, you know, I find it interesting um, that, you know, in the years since the LDS church has, has published the pictures of the seer stone and has mm-hmm. kind of, change the narrative on how the translation was, was done in terms of looking at a rock and a hat. You know, I, I, I'm old enough to remember yeah. that that was, that was condemned as, as anti-Mormon lies yeah, I mean, previously. I, mean, I, so. I, I know that some members <clears throat> certainly felt that way. I, I was never taught that was anti-Mormon, um, but I was also, you know, we definitely had in paintings and stuff. It was conveyed in a very different way. I'd agree with that for sure. Well, I mean, you know, I, I referenced the books that I, I pulled off of my father's shelf um that were old lds apologetics books you know they, they really mm-hmm. sought to uh discredit the idea that joseph smith was brought up on on glass looking charges um uh-huh. and, until you know wesley walters found uh the 1826 uh, uh, uh court uh, records right sure, that showed sure. that he was so uh-huh. um, i just find it interesting that you know that kind of like the uh and i'm not criticizing you it's just, it's just something uh-huh. that i find interesting because people will say it to me now uh, when I'm when I say when I try to make the case, well, you know, Smith might have had reference to other materials. Um, they'll say, well, like you said, you know, how how would he reference that while looking, you know, or memorize it while looking in a in a rock and a hat? Whereas that that kind of 
um, apologetic never would have been given uh, maybe 20, oh, 30 years ago. Yeah, um, no, that, that's fair. And we, we rightly should change our apologetics when we have new information. Like right. I think now I look at the hat thing and that's actually makes Joseph's case even stronger because if he's copying the KJV, he's memorizing it and freestyling while staring into a nothingness of a hat. So, um, what, but let me yeah. ask a question about that, right? So in essence, what you have there is is Smith doing kind of like something more akin to automatic writing, right? He's mm-hmm. staring in a he's staring in a hat at the rock and he's writing, he's dictating what is given to him, right? Mm-hmm. Um so if you have some something like the Urantia book, I'm not sure if you're familiar sure. with that or yeah. not. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of that a little bit. Yeah. So that that book is claimed to have been written by automatic writing as well. Right? Uh-huh. It, claim, it claims to have yeah, information I mean, about I, Jesus Christ and aliens. and Sure. I wouldn't you, say the Book of Mormon is claimed to be automatic writing, though. Like, I don't think that's that's what it was. If that, so, like, okay, I could, so what, uh, what do you how, what do you perceive as the difference then? Oh, I mean, I'm not entirely sure of the mechanics, but we, we know that Joseph would look into a hat and using the seer stone, he was able to see either the characters themselves or like a replacement of those characters. It kind of varies depending on what third person accounts have said. Um, but when you look at Skousen's work regarding the scribal manuscripts, what he finds is that clearly the errors being made are errors that come from him reading something to his scribe. Whereas as opposed to him saying something, whereas, you know, with automatic writing, he would have had to, um, it, the errors would have been of a different sort. They would have, uh, they would have been errors that one makes when writing rather than one reading something. Um, but it's just never okay, described gotcha. in the same way as like an automatic writing where someone taps into some something and just lets their hand do whatever it does. That that yeah. to me is a whole different. Um, that's just a whole different approach. Okay, but um, in terms of like, how do you go about uh, determining that, say, the Urantia book can't be true and accurate information, but the Book of Mormon can. Like, how do you, yeah. how do you go? Yeah, well, that? I mean, in terms of that particular book, I've only read snippets of it. I think there's probably a lot of truth in there, rather or not, you know, I, I think that it falls on the fruit of the spirit to discern what's really good and what's what's not. Um, in terms of being a truthful record, I don't know that your answer presents itself as if it has, it's, it's, it's a historical record. So this is a big difference between the Book of Mormon and other books that a person could pray to know the truth of is that the Book of Mormon presents itself as an objectively verifiable actual historical record. And so that's the truth claim. Whereas with Urantia, I don't know that it's based on a particular history so much as like knowledge that has been received. And so some of that may be good. Some of it may be true. Um, I know a few LDS who, who are into that book. Um, mm-hmm. I've read only a little bit of it, so I can't really opine, but uh, the stuff that I've read is interesting, if nothing else. Okay. Um, what what about um, James J. Strang? Have you read oh, much sure. about him? Sure. Like, yeah. So how do you? He claimed to do many of the same things Joseph Smith did, oh, yeah. right? Uh, uh-huh. Found plates, the Voorhees plates, translated uh-huh. them. The Book of the Law of the Lord produced new scripture. How do you? How do you weigh that against against Joseph oh, yeah. Smith and say no. Strang Strang was wrong, but Smith was right? Mm-hmm. So the, what I love about Strang is that it shows just how hard what Joseph did would actually be if someone were to do it. So if you compare the Voorhees plates with the gold plates, the Voorhees plates are tiny. There's only a couple of them, really crudely done. Um, and the people who who saw them, you know, talk about that. Whereas the Book of Mormon, everyone who saw those and felt those, this was a massive record, beautifully etched uh, hieroglyphs on it. The craftsmanship was just better. If I remember right, with Strang, one of his co-conspirators later came out saying, I, I helped him make the plays and, you know, this is who we did that. You never obviously had anything like that with Joseph. 
uh, Strang was a man who had a lot more knowledge. He was older. He was more, I don't know if cunning is the right word, but he was definitely clever. And I mean, what he was clearly trying to do was copy Joseph in every possible way that he could. And we see that he pretty much failed in every possible way that he could. He has witnesses coming out against him. He has plates that don't add up. He has uh, visions that he admits kind of gets getting caught in. Whereas with Joseph, none of that blowback ever happened. So I actually really like to compare those two stories because Strang is kind of like one of those guys, you know, I, I encounter a lot of people on the internet who say, oh, the Book of Mormon would have been so easy to write. Anyone could do it. And I tell, okay, do it. And Strang was a person who attempted that and failed, even though he, th there were several witnesses who, who joined his church and even members of Joseph's family because he was using those same, um, you know, those same telegraphs that Joseph was, those same markers. But in the end, it, he didn't stack up and his religion died out quite quickly as compared to Joseph's, which is, you know, held on. Matthew, any questions? So uh, I know we've, we've kind of gone all over the place. Should we jump into the Chicago statement? I know that you guys had a couple of specific questions about that. Yeah, we can jump into that. Okay. So uh, you asked me, I, I talked about Article 3, which um, maybe, you know, I should have read. I don't have one in front of me here, but I could pull it up real quick. So for the, the listeners to know what it is we're talking about here. So Article 3 says, um, we affirm that the written word in its entirety is revelation given by God. So my first question with that was, how do we account for co-opted stories or events that had been added later that had been taken from other cultures and sort of repurposed uh, for the Bible? You know, did these, uh, my personal view is that this can be done under the direction of the spirit and that can become inspired just like uh, the author speaking their own words could be inspired. So, you know, I believe Paul can take poetry or can take something else converted to his own use and that becomes the word of God in him doing that. But originally it wasn't. Um, and so the answer we talked about was the rich man and Lazarus parable from, uh, from the new Testament. I don't know if you guys had a chance to, to look into that or if you had any specific questions or things to bring up about that. Yeah. I mean, I did look into it and, and what you said, I, you know, I would tend to agree with you, right? Because um, like verbal plenary inspiration is the idea that, that the words used by the authors of scripture were inspired by God, were breathed out by God, right? Mm -hmm. um, but also that um, the personalities and cultures of the authors were not uh, overtaken by God. Mm -hmm. So he's revelation is not by like a dictaphone type situation, yeah. right? When 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 Christians talk about inerrancy and infallibility and, and revelation and inspiration, um, it's not like what we were talking about with automatic writing, where mm -hmm. you know the personalities and thoughts of the authors are just completely out and whatever their mm -hmm. hand is writing. That's not what's going on. Um, the authors are writing from their own contexts um, and carried about by the Holy Spirit uh, to write what God would have them write. And yeah, so, amen. with regards to the uh, rich man and Lazarus. Um, the first thing I would say is you might, you might get a different answer from me uh, on this because I'm a biblical studies guy than you might on some, from somebody else um, mm -hmm. say it's, you know, a systematics guy, but um, <clears throat> so, you know, you can't, you can't really take graduate level courses in biblical studies without encountering the idea that biblical authors used other literature, right? So mm -hmm. the ancient near Eastern literature is found uh, in various ways throughout the old Testament. Sure. Um, an example of that is like um, the the Genesis creation account uh, as kind of like polemic uh, against the other ancient Near Eastern uh, 
um, creation myths, right? Sure. Um, to say, hey, you know, Yahweh is creator. And <clears throat> excuse me. And so um, that's kind of where my biblical studies background takes me with that. With with regards to the the rich man and Lazarus, I'm, I'm not fully convinced. So uh, for our listeners here, the idea here is that um, the rich, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is an older Egyptian motif that is used by uh, Jesus in the gospel of Luke um, and kind of repurposed. Right. And so that was, that was proposed by Hugo Gressman, a German scholar uh, in 1918. I'm not fully convinced that, that that's the case. Um, so the reason why is that, that while there are some parallels, there's some significant divergences between the two. Um, and <clears throat> excuse me. So just to, just as like the divergences between uh, the ancient Near Eastern myths and what the Old Testament prophets write in mm-hmm. a polemic against the myths are what are significant, right? Because the Old Testament prophets are saying, um, you know, Yahweh is is the uh, God Almighty, right? Just as those divergences are important for the Old Testament record, I think they're important in in the parable as well. Um, <clears throat> so, um, so the 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 Egyptian. Uh, story is called uh, Set Me and See Osiris. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some rough parallels that that Hugo Gressman proposed. One that that both um, contain the deaths of a rich man and a poor man, right? Uh, both contain a reversal of those uh, two men's fortunes in the afterlife. And the third uh, parallel is that there's a possibility of returning from the netherworld to reveal this truth to the living. Um, I think that third one is especially stretched, given what uh, the Egyptian account actually says where it's somebody else who comes back, not one of those who dies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so the, the significant points of divergence that I see uh, are Abraham's bosom, the concept of, of Lazarus resting in Abraham's bosom. That's a, that's something that's not found in any text prior to the gospel of Luke, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Um, there's no explicit reason given in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus for why their fortunes are reversed. Um, you can kind of infer that maybe it's, uh, just, you know, being rich is bad and being poor is good. Um, <clears throat> but there's no explicit reason. Whereas in the Egyptian, uh, set me in see Osiris, it explicitly states that it's because of the rich man's evil deeds and the poor man's good deeds. Right. So that mm-hmm. it's, it's their being their judgment or reward is, is a result of their own deeds, which is absent in, in the Luke account. Um, one thing to note is that, um, this parable of Jesus is the only one to actually name a character. The rest of his parables are, are more general. Um, the reason that's interesting is that, uh, and some scholars have pointed this out, um, the name Lazarus is the Greek equivalent of the Old Testament uh, Hebrew name Eliezer. Uh, and Eliezer was uh, Abraham's steward and named heir prior to the birth of Isaac. So there's a very uh, strong suggestion that that, that parable what Jesus is actually doing is, is commenting on uh, the story of Abraham and Eliezer, which is interesting. interesting. Huh. Um, <clears throat> and the other thing about that, to come back to first Enoch is Jesus's portrayal of the afterlife in the parable um, has a parallel in first Enoch 22. Um, so this whole idea that there's a place for the, for the, um, uh, the, the righteous and a place for the wicked in the afterlife uh, to await the judgment um, is paralleled in First Enoch twenty-two. So, so it sounds a whole lot like uh, LDS plan of salvation, too, right? Um, <laughs> so <laughs> maybe there's. I mean, it's it's interesting, right? 
Um, but the difference, I guess the difference I would, I would note is that in, um, in uh, first Enoch, there's actually four caves in a mountain. Um, one of the caves is, is for the righteous. Three of them are for the unrighteous. Um, so, but just that there was, there was this idea that higher, higher up, there would be, um, righteous and lower down, there would be unrighteous, uh, is paralleled in first Enoch. Um, so just all of that, I think there's, there's really interesting suggestions and strong suggestions that it could be, uh, a story, um, uh, you know, wholly within the, the Jewish tradition and, and actually fits better within the Jewish tradition than some, than some of the strained parallels. Um, I mean, obviously there's some, some motifs that they share, um, but there's significant differences in the way that it's used in, in Luke is, you know, shows it to be thoroughly Jewish. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, I, I think that's a good answer. Um, you know, th- what, what interests me in that one is that Osiris is taking Abraham's place. Uh, if, if we're to assume that there's a, a shared source or something in that, which is, is just it's interesting to me from a birth of a uh, book of Abraham perspective. So yeah. the other yeah. so the other thing to note there though is that um so uh it's interesting to think about the par- the parable because it mentions Abraham and it, Abraham's bosom and it mentions Lazarus, right? And so if you're thinking about along the lines of Eliezer is Lazarus and Eliezer was <clears throat> Abraham's heir who was a non-Israelite, and you're not you're non uh not a member of, of Abraham's family. So not a descendant. Um, you know, what, what's interesting is that what you, what you might actually have there is, is Jesus commenting on, um, what you see later in the new Testament, um, where, you know, the, the truth originally came to, uh, the Israelites and then is given to the Gentiles. So the first, the last, last and first, right. Which is also a theme in Luke. So sure. That's cool. That's cool. I like that. Um, so we discussed that. Oh, did, did you have anything you wanted to add, Matthew? Uh, yeah, actually. Um, so when I looked at it, I, I kind of found evidence to the opposite direction. So it's not like basically a Hebrew story, but it's more of a Greco-Roman kind of context. There's another story. Um, I have the paper because I'm a perpetual student, so I have <laughs> a university access. So if you want, nice. I, can, I, I can send you this uh, article, but it's by uh, Ronald Hawk. And uh, it's basically the Greco-Roman backgrounds to Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31. Mm. And he compares it to uh, several, uh, two main sources, I think, that speak of um, a character. Let's see. It's a poor marginalized artisan named Mycillus. He goes hungry from early morning to evening and must bear the slights, insults, and beatings of the powerful. So this is a, a summarization in this website that I'll send later. Uh, when Mycillus and a rich tyrant named Megapenthes, or Megapenthes, I don't know how you pronounce that, they both make the trip to Hades. Um, so Megapenthes, the rich man, in, similar to the rich man in Jesus' parable, so it's his summarization, tries to strike a bargain to alter a situation, but to no avail. Finally, uh, Mycillus and uh, he, you know, Megapenthes, they face Radamanthus, the judge of the underworld. Uh, Mycillus is judged to be pure and goes to the Isle of the Blessed, Megapenthes' soul, however, is stained with corruption, and he will—he is uh, appropriately punished. So, uh, Hawk he says that uh, this is kind of like a background to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So, it so uh, when Paul is kind of describing it, I was thinking that it's possible that this is just like this kind of story is ingrained in the culture, both the Jewish culture and the Greco-Roman culture. So, it's something that's like easily identifiable um, mm-hmm. that that you know that he kind of tapped into to teach a truth about um, you know. Uh, what it means to show mercy, you know, the value of showing mercy versus, you know, um, being unmerciful. So it's, it's possible that, you know, 
and there's even debate whether this is actually a parable or not, but I think, you know, or an actual event, but I think it's, mm-hmm. he's just using this, he's tapping into this, you know, this mythos that's already in the, the, the cultures yeah. to try to teach a truth. And so that's how I yeah. kind of, I saw it. Yeah. 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 And so what I would say there is that, you know, I think Matthew's right there, right. As I was saying, you see the same kind of thing with the Annie myth, uh, ancient Near Eastern myths uh, in the Old Testament, the way that the, the Old Testament prophets interact with and make use of them and, and then ultimately say, you know, Yahweh is greater than, than your mm-hmm. gods, right? Um, this, this parable, if it is a parable, um, shows Jesus doing something very similar with, with a story and a theme and a motif that, that seems to have been uh, within the culture more broadly, Right. Um, and he, he makes use of it for, for his purpose. And that places Jesus very squarely in the tradition of old Testament, uh, prophet, right. Which prophet priest King is, is one of his roles. So it sounds like you guys are in agreement that a prophet could take, um, you know, something that's not scripture related, but just something that the cultural knows about or, or that's floating around out there and use that. And it becomes inspired scripture in his use of that. Is that mm-hmm. an accurate yeah. yeah, I would I would say that's accurate okay. as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. Yes. Okay. Cool. Cool. I think we're in agreement there. The Faith After Mormonism Conference is an annual conference that provides encouragement and insight for people leaving Mormonism to explore a new faith home in historic biblical Christianity. Through speakers, workshops, exhibitors, and individual interactions, you will receive helpful resources and meet others on a similar journey. This year. The featured guests are going to be the folks from Adams Road Ministry. Adams Road is a Christian nonprofit ministry dedicated to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ through song and testimony. Its members are former Mormons who have been brought into a saving relationship with Jesus through the grace of God. This year, there will be two events. The North event will be held at Alpine Church in Layton, Utah on September 10th and 11th, and the South event will be held September 24th and 25th at Center Point Church in Orem, Utah. For those of you who are in Utah, I encourage you to make a trip either to Leyden or Orem to these events. I think you'll be greatly blessed by them. And I just wanted to share that information with you. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to Outer Brightness wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're benefiting from our content, please write a review to help us spread the word. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that notification bell. Music for Outer Brightness is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and Adams Road. You can learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. worthy of the blood that Jesus shed. But now I know that all the works I did were meaningless compared with Jesus' lonely death on the cross where he bore sin.
Take up my cross and follow where Jesus. 